It's Monday, and that so happens to be the day that I like to talk about monsters. I'm Jeff Arbuckle, and this is Monster Mondays, presented to you by Film Seizure. So, to close out the year of 2020, let's talk about 1976's Track of the Moon Beast. Um, there's not a great deal that I know about this movie, about the actual background of it or anything, uh, at least based on any minimal search that I usually do for these little openings. But I can say a couple of things. One, the script was written uh, very quickly over the course of a weekend. This movie kind of shows it, but one of the co-writers uh, was Bill Finger. Now, Finger is best known as a comic book writer in the golden age of comics. He wrote uh, a considerable number of Green Lantern stories with the original Green Lantern, Alan Scott. Uh, but he's probably known best for his main contribution, which was the writer on the earlier Batman comics of the late 30s and then into the 40s. Um, there is a ton of debate uh, whether or not that um, he helped create the character with Bob Kane whether he was just a hired writer that was brought in by uh, the company that would later be known as uh, DC Comics. Um, but he, uh, so originally, it is uh, Bob Kane, an artist, kind of came up with the idea for the Batman, which was um, a little bit more like a, um, he looked more like a circus performer type of person. And then, um, but it's, kind of contended quite a bit that Finger then came in and helped make tweaks to the character and, uh, you know, just kind of added this whole new air around this character that uh, that Kane kind of came up with early on in his life. I think Bob Kane may have been like a late teenager or an early 20s a young adult when he came up with Batman. Um, and then he sold the idea to uh, National, which became... DC um, and there's this whole uh, debate over did Bob Kane make those changes based on suggestions by Finger or did he take those ideas from Finger and run with it and then took all the credit um, it's something that for decades Bob Kane uh, really kind of fought exactly how much credit Finger deserves for Batman um, he does give credit to Finger for the Joker. However, uh, there's a, a guy named Jerry Robinson who argues that he and Finger had more to do with creating the Joker than Bob Kane did. Um, so it's it, there's a lot of controversy around it. I think it's best stated like this. Absolutely, positively, if created in any other time than the golden age, which was back when either people were using pseudonyms because they didn't want to be well known as being comic book writers um, or comic book artists, or uh, maybe in the early uh, in the early Silver Age in the 50s, any other time uh, there would have been some sort of co-credit given to Bob Kane and Bill Finger for Batman, without a doubt. Um, it's one of those things that's a, kind of a sad reality when it comes to comic book creators. Most of the oldest uh, guys who created characters that are loved and dearly revered today didn't quite get the credit they deserved 
uh, at the time that they were creating it. And it was very, very easy for people like Bob Kane, who was very um, egocentric, to kind of gobble up all of that and take advantage of his part in creating a character and kind of running with it. Uh, the sad thing was was that um, Bill Finger died in 1974. Now, it was two years before this movie came out, but he was pretty much broke, uh, whereas Bob Kane lived a very lavish life. Um, a lot of people said that Bob Kane saw more of Bruce Wayne and himself <laughs> than anything else, and he tried to live like a very, very rich and well-to-do man, and a lot of it came from his... Um, uh, his constant um, bringing up the fact that he created Batman and it, it just it went completely different directions for Bob Kane and Bill Finger um, he when he died he was buried in a potter's field grave which is that's just terrible that's what happens when uh, people die without money probably lonely um, it's not it's not a good thing. It's not something that anybody should aspire to have done. Um, and but his son Fred Finger did eventually uh, claim his body to have it cremated so that he could uh, spread his ashes over someplace better. Uh, Fred Finger uh, died in the early 90s due to complications from AIDS. But uh, Fred did have a daughter, Athena, and she was very successful over the last 15 years, 15, 20 years or so, uh, in pressing Warner Brothers, the owner of DC Comics, to give her grandfather credit for co-creating Batman. Nowadays, if you go see a Batman movie, ever since 2015, um, his, you, you see Batman created by Bob Kane and Bill Finger. So he finally got that credit. It just came, you know, 40 years uh, after his death, unfortunately. Uh, but this movie uh, centers around Paul, a mineralogist, mineral, mineralogist, <laughs> uh, that's a hard word to say, uh, in New Mexico. And uh, he is there kind of just digging up some minerals, you know, checking some stuff out in the desert. And uh, he comes across his former teacher, Native American man, Johnny Longbow. Uh, Johnny Longbow has a different name, but I will forever know him as Johnny Longbow. I don't care. Um, I'm just going to say his entire name throughout this whole episode. Uh, so Johnny Longbow is there on a summer research trip with a couple more of his students. And they've brought along with him uh, this photographer named Kathy. Now, exactly why she's there, because it's some sort of an assignment. She's not a student. She actually is a professional photographer. So I'm not entirely sure what it is that she's there for. They may say, I don't know, I'm too busy focusing on Johnny Longbow and everything that he, that he does in this movie. But um, Kathy and Paul kind of take to each other pretty quickly, and he takes her to this place that he likes to go uh, to get some night shots of this kind of valley or this canyon that they're at. And uh, while they're there, there's, uh, there's been this story that's been going around that, that an asteroid or something struck the moon and pieces of the moon, not, not big pieces, but stuff from the moon has ejected from its surface and is headed towards Earth. So there are meteorites that are happening uh, for several nights in a row, basically. 
and uh, they see a meteorite coming down and they think it's getting pretty close and so he dives to protect Kathy kind of tackles her and covers her up and everything and he gets cut by whatever it was that fell from the from the sky and there's also another piece of the meteorite which is glowing and pretty big and so they say well let's go ahead and leave we'll come back and see if we can move it uh once it cools off a little bit or you know whatever but um as time passes though paul becomes ill he gets woozy uh but also uh he and kathy get closer and closer and start dating um as more time passes, there are these bizarre attacks happening at night that people think is some sort of larger lizard that's able to walk on its hind legs. Um, you're really kind of cutting through people in town, basically. Uh, but then Paul, uh, he's still not feeling very well. He's got headaches. He's, he's woozy. He gets sick. He can't stay on his feet for very long. Uh, they go and take him to a head doctor. And the head doctor does some scans and some, uh, you know, some CTs and whatever, whatever acronyms there are. But uh, they do a bunch of scans on his head and they realize that there is a uh, piece of the moon rock that's lodged in Paul's head. So they call for some advanced neural surgeons to come out and uh, extract it from him, essentially. Well, it turns out that Paul is transforming into a moon beast of Native American lore due to the piece of rock in his head and to, due to the scrape that he got, which is how the rock got inside his head. And Johnny Longbow figures out from Native legends that the moon rock will ultimately cause Paul to become molecularly and atomically uh, unstable. So he's going to explode, basically. So he uh, helps track down Paul, who's now transformed completely into the uh, moon beast. Uh, they figure out, uh, based on stuff that he said to Kathy earlier in the movie, where he's going to be at this place, where basically where he got struck by the moon uh, rock. And that's the place he likes to go to uh, think and unwind and stuff like that. So they go there. Uh, Johnny Longbow has uh, fashioned himself an arrowhead out of the remaining bits of the uh, uh, of the moon rock and shoots Paul so he can blow up sooner. And that's it. Um, Johnny Longbow is not messing around. Let's put it that way. Uh, so let's get to my three things. First, come on, Johnny Longbow, right? I've been saying Johnny Longbow's name this whole damn time. He's, he's number one on my likes list. This guy is pedantically wise, and he will tell you exactly everything that is in his Native American style stew if you just ask him. Yeah, and he goes through it um, in a way where um, it's not just saying like, oh, there's some vegetables in there and, and some meat bits or whatever. He's like, well, there's corn and uh, you know, green pepper, some onions. And he's like going through the whole damn ingredients list it's like just tell them it's vegetables and some bits of meat and shit it, it's it kills me every time um he's kind of the stoic person also but he seemingly has no problem in destroying his former student when he transforms into the moon beast in fact he screams right before he shoots him that is not paul anymore <laughs> and it's like dude i mean come on now it's like have some compassion for your former student as you are yelling this at his girlfriend, uh, it's, it's hilarious. Um, in fact, he's even more than okay with ditching those students that he's on sabbatical with 
about the 12 minute mark into this movie he's starting to hang out with with Paul and Kathy the whole time and um, he's just one of those characters that takes himself so very seriously in a movie that takes itself even more seriously if that's even possible it's just it's hilarious um, second much like with two weeks ago when I talked about the giant Gila monster uh, this movie has that incredible regional feel it feels very southwestern um, and it's you know it's out there in the New Mexico desert um, there's a um, there's a quiet calm to where they're at that makes the movie um, it kind of gives a, another feel to the movie if you will and uh, it, it also serves up some good backdrop for those Native American legends because a lot of what they're excavating while they're out there on these uh, digs and stuff are you know Native American things and um, there's just there's Native American stuff everywhere and I'm going to say it again. Johnny Longbow is like the big man on campus in this area. And it's fucking fantastic. It's so fantastic. But um, it's just, it's, you know, it comes during a time in the 70s when people seem to be uh, really, really into Native American legend. Uh, I had covered some time ago the movie The Manitou. And it's very similar to that where all of a sudden this stuff that would have been deemed kind of hokum if you will with a native american legend is suddenly kind of taken very seriously and and there are white people who are just into it man and the thing is is that i feel like in the 70s people were into the aesthetic or some of the stories they weren't really into the people, if you know what I mean. I don't mean to get political there, but uh, or social, uh, social political. But it's it's just one of those things where it's like all of a sudden we had a lot of movies that deal that dealt with uh, you know Indian stuff and Native American stuff. But then it was just for the aesthetic. It was just for the but. Uh, but that being said, I mean, Johnny Longbow is a major character in this movie, and that's a big deal, right? Um, so it's it's you kind of have to give a little to take what's kind of good out of this which is that aesthetic but also you have uh, a person who is a native american character who is uh, ultimately the guy who knows the most about what's going on here thirdly um so there's this song that plays in this movie and i don't think anybody can talk about tracking the moon beast without talking about the song california lady um it's played in this movie almost like uh, like a music video like I think the whole song plays I think the movie just stops to play the whole song um, it's uh, it's this thing where like also it's like it's, it kind of happens in an important scene where Paul is taking Kathy on the date but Johnny Longbow is there too like he's a damn chaperone or something like there are times where I legitimately think Johnny Longbow is trying to take Kathy from Paul but that but I digress but uh, so they go to this concert and I think the guy who's singing is called uh, Frank Larrabee uh, I found that out by just going on to uh, YouTube and trying to find the song uh, Frank Larrabee I, I'm guessing he was a regional uh, musician or something like that but uh, this is some pretty serious 70s light folk business going on here. I mean, it's very Jim Croce in style. 
uh, where it's um, somebody living a hard life, if you will. But then love kind of comes in and, uh, you know, I don't know, kind of makes the guy feel like writing a song about it or something, I guess. But I think a lot of the nostalgia I have for the song comes from the Mystery Science Theater 3000 episodes. One of my favorite episodes of the series does this movie. And they do this thing with that uh, song where they turn it into like a whole fake uh, behind VH1 behind the music story. Uh, and it's just, it's so funny. You can find that on YouTube. You can just go into there and find uh, the band who played California Lady, I think is the best way to find it. Or the plant, or the band that played California Lady. It's, it's just a, they take one little segment of a movie and build a whole story for it and it's great. But I do actually kind of like the song <laughs> and it's, uh, it's, it's not a great song. It's very, very simple. It's very, uh, but it's always something I get real excited about when I know that scene is coming up in the, in the movie. Uh, but I, you know, the track of the movies is not a very good movie. There's things in it that I have nostalgia for, probably thanks to mystery science theater, but it's, uh, it is not a great movie. I just found out for the first time that this was co-written by Bill Finger, which to me makes this movie even that much more interesting. But uh, it's something that I can definitely say, you know, it's worth a look. It's, it's, it's just, it's very classic 70s creature feature melodrama. And that, I think that's why I kind of actually like this movie a little bit more than, than I should. So that wraps up this week's Monster Mondays. And that wraps up 2020. By the time we come back again, It'll be 2021, and hopefully 2021, we say this every year, right? Hopefully 2021 is going to be better than what 2020 was, but we shall see. Uh, don't forget to check out new episodes of Film Seizure every Wednesday and a new installment of Monster Mondays each Monday on FilmSeizure.com, as well as uh, places where fine podcasts are found, like Stitcher, TuneIn, uh, Spotify, Google Play, um, Apple Podcasts. Uh, SoundCloud. Just go around, search uh, whatever your podcast uh, place of choice is. Just go there, search for Film Seizure, see if we're there. Additionally, you can hop on over to Facebook and Twitter to follow us by just searching for Film Seizure. You can also check out new posts on my website, bmovieenema.com, each and every Friday. So until next time, stay spooky and have a very happy and safe new year. California lady, she's the one I wanna see. My California lady.